I invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel according to John. This morning we'll be in chapter 4, concluding chapter 4, beginning in verses 43 to 54. I want to talk to you this morning about the unbelief that is encountered and conquered by Jesus Christ in these verses. If you have an ESV Pew Bible, you'll be on page 889. Before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God in heaven, we do thank you for this specific moment in time that you have gathered us together with brothers and sisters in Christ to bring our sacrifice of worship before you. God, we pray and ask that each and everything that we've done thus far has been acceptable to you. And God, we pray that this sacrifice of our time and studying your word this morning would be acceptable to you as well. God, we admit and acknowledge and confess that we are sinners and that our sinfulness distorts our ability to rightly divide and interpret your word. And so, God, we ask now that your spirit that dwells inside of us would help us in this endeavor. God, that your spirit would illuminate the truth of your word to our minds, God, and that you but do what only you can do and apply the reading and teaching and preaching of your word to our hearts and to our lives. God, we ask that you would take this word, Father, and implant it in our hearts. And that, God, that you would, by the power of your word, overcome the unbelief that continues to reside within each and every one of us. God, if there's someone among us today, Lord, that is not in Christ, Father, I pray that that your word would overcome their unbelief and that you would bring them to saving faith, bring them to repentance and faith and trust in Christ as Lord and Savior. So God, just be with us now as we study your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So looking at unbelief encountered and conquered, we begin reading in John chapter 4, verse 43. After the two days he departed for Galilee, For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, He went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. It's about 1 p.m. The father knew that the hour, that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Cana. Now what we have in these verses is Jesus Christ encountering the unbelief of the Jewish people. And in a sense, conquering that unbelief, at least in the household of this official. And he does so by healing the official's son by the power of his word. 
We first see this unbelief in verses 43 through 45. These three verses serve first as an introduction to the second miracle recorded in the Gospel of John because they show us the unbelief that Jesus is facing as he returns to Galilee. But these verses also transition us from this parenthetical section that's run from 4.4 through 4.42. We read in verse 43, After the two days he departed for Galilee. These two days mentioned here, the two days that he stayed with the Samaritans in Samaria back in verse 40, where we read, so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there for two days. This time in Samaria serves as an interlude to the regular ministry of Jesus Christ that has been taking place in Galilee and in Judea. If you look back to chapter four, verses three and four, we read, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So Christ has left from Judea, he's headed to Galilee, but then we read in verse 4 that he had to pass through Samaria. There was this divine appointment that God the Father was pressing upon God the Son that forced him and caused him to go through Samaria on his way to Galilee so that he could meet with this woman at the well. And I think that ultimately in John's narrative, this whole interlude, this parenthetical section that is this Meeting with the woman at the well of Samaria serves for us at least three purposes. First, I believe that given the the, the narrative thus far, it serves in showing us the plan for which the gospel is to go out into the nations. When we read in Acts chapter 1-8, Jesus tells his disciples, his apostles, before he ascends into heaven and sits down at the right hand of God, that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Christ here is laying out, or Christ in the book of Acts is laying out for the church the plan for which the gospel will go forth. And we trace that in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, at Pentecost, Peter stands and preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit pours out upon those Jews that are present. In Acts chapter 8, we see the gospel go to the Samaritans. In Acts chapter 10, we see the gospel go forth to the Gentiles with the conversion of Cornelius. And with each of these in the book of Acts, as it goes through each place that Christ said it would go, there's this Pentecost-like experience where the Holy Spirit of God supernaturally is poured out on those peoples that are receiving the gospel. Now here in John, we've seen Jesus follow the same pattern in his ministry. In John chapter 3, we've seen Jesus bring the gospel to the Jews with Nicodemus. In John chapter 4, we've seen Jesus bring the gospel to the Samaritans with the woman at the well and ultimately to the Samaritans in Samaria uh, to a greater degree. And now here in our text this morning to this official's son. While the text isn't explicit here, he is considered, and I think correctly so, by almost all commentators to be a Gentile. He is a royal servant or official to Herod Antipas who served as tetrarch or king, if you will, of Galilee. So we see the progression of the offer of the gospel from Jew to Samaritan to Gentile. We see it here in John. We'll later see it in the book of Acts. Now, secondly, and probably more importantly, the interlude in Samaria serves John's overarching purpose in writing this gospel. Now, it's important for us to remember why it is that John is writing all that he writes to us. And he tells us in John chapter 20, verse 31, that these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So everything that John writes is ultimately serving for us that purpose. 
So the time in Samaria serves to bring us to ultimately this beautiful confession and declaration of who Jesus Christ is. The one and only Savior of the world. Look at what they say in verse 42. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. The interlude in Samaria brings us to this declaration in this sound Christology that Jesus Christ is the exclusive one and only Savior of the entire world. And thirdly, this time in Samaria serves as a contrast between the belief of those who are not his own and the unbelief of those who are his own. You can say the belief of those who are not Jews and the unbelief of those who are Jews. This time in Samaria serves to show us the outworking of the truthfulness of the prologue in the Gospel of John. John 1, 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Yet the Samaritans have. John 1, 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And now we see this fleshed out in verses 44 through 45. John's given us this parenthetical statement in verse 44 of something that Jesus has said. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. His hometown or his own country, as some of your translations will will translate that, is literally speaking about Galilee. While he's had success in Samaria, Jesus knows that his time was just an interlude. That God is sending him onward. And where he must go is now a place of difficult soil, a place where he has no honor, a place where he has no respect. He's going to a place that in actuality, above all other places, should accept Jesus Christ for who he is. Yet they reject him. They know him. They've seen him grow up. They know that there's something different about this Christ. I think Aaron mentioned it a few weeks ago. Could you imagine growing up as a brother or sister of Christ? That there's something different about him. And those that are in Galilee should know above all people that there's something different about him. Now what we read in verse 44 and 45 leads many people to see a contradiction in John's writing. But there's no contradiction in John, for there's no contradiction in the Bible. And, And I unapologetically begin with that presupposition. You can call it a circular argument if you want. I begin with statements like this with understanding that there is no contradiction in the Bible. So we have to seek and strive to understand what it is that's taking place here. Many people read what we just read in verse 44, that Jesus testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. And they come to verse 45 and they see that when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So Jesus has no honor in his hometown, but when he arrives to Galilee, his hometown, his own country, he is welcomed or he's received by the Galileans. But the reception is not because of who he is. John is writing with irony here, even a hint of sarcasm. You see, the the Samaritans accepted him as the savior of the world. They accepted him for who he is. They accepted him as the Christos, as the Messiah, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They accepted this Jesus as the Savior of the world and declared him to be so. But these Galileans, these Jews, 
They merely welcomed him or received him because of what they had seen him do. Both at the wedding at Cana and more explicitly here for what they had seen him do while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. Now, all of them would have been required by law to go to the Passover feast. And while they were there, we read in John verses 2.23, that now while he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, when he believed in his name, when they saw the signs and wonders that he was doing. Now, we'll see a little bit later in our study of John, when we get to John chapter 8, what Jesus has to say about those who offer mere superficial faith in him because of something they've seen him do. He literally declares in John chapter 8 to the Jews who had believed in him that you are not of me, you are of your father, the devil. But here we're still seeing this contrast. You see these Jews in Galilee who had traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover feast, had seen Jesus there. They had seen the miracles that he had performed. And now he returns to town and they welcome him and they receive him, but not as Messiah not as the savior of the world. They welcome him as a miracle worker, as a magician, as merely a guy who's on the street doing parlor tricks for them. They welcome him as only someone they could get something from and that they could be entertained by, as if he's some type of David Blaine or David Copperfield. Do not accept him because of his person and his position. Do not accept him as the Christ. Do not accept him as the son of God. Do not accept him as God incarnated in human flesh. And we see this reality in Jesus' response to the official's plea in verse 48. And we'll get there, but I want you to see it now because it shows the point of what we're dealing with here. When the official runs to Jesus and pleads with him to save his dying son, Jesus says to him, unless you, and both yous here in the plural, unless you, you all, y'all, see signs and wonders, y'all will not believe. And it's interesting because he's rebuking the crowd. Unless you see signs, unless you see wonders, you will not believe. It's a corporate rebuke that Jesus responds to this individual's plea for help. And it's because of their desire to merely see miracles from Christ. This one man comes with this one request, this urgent need, and Jesus rebukes the unbelief of the entire crowd that's in Galilee. And let John's sarcasm and irony serve as a warning for us this morning. For who is Jesus Christ to you? Is he just someone that you can get something from? Is he just a genie in your bottle to serve you and to grant you your wishes? Is he just a guy doing service and magic and parlor tricks on your behalf? Is he just seeking to entertain you with who he is and what he can do? Do you come to him just when you need something? Just when life is feeling tough and more than you can handle? Or is he the sovereign creator of the heavens and the earth and the seas and the skies and everything that is in them? For you, is he the son of God? Is he the savior of the world? Is he worthy of receiving your worship and your devotion because of who he is and what he has accomplished on your behalf? Are you convinced this morning of the complete worship ability of Jesus Christ, the son of God, the savior of the world? Is he merely someone that you think you can get something from? Please see the severity of the rebuke here. Their welcoming and receiving Christ on the surface may look good, as it does for maybe many of us in this room. 
but it is not saving faith. Saving faith accepts him as Lord and Savior of the world precisely because that is who he is. Like, you do not make Christ Lord. You do not accept Christ into your heart. Like, Christ is Lord. He is Savior. He is God. Saving faith accepts him as Lord and Savior precisely because that's who he is. So this is the unbelief that Jesus encounters in Galilee. So let us, in the remaining of these verses, see how Jesus deals with and conquers this unbelief. It's the point of these remaining verses. It's the point of the second sign. Before we dive into these verses, we need to make at least a simple remark concerning the structure of John here. John intentionally makes it clear to us that this miracle takes place in Cana, both in 46 and ultimately I'll even advocate that he does so in verses 54. So in 46 he says, so when he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water, the water into wine. He's forcing us to think back into John chapter 2 where Jesus performed his first miracle at Cana. And then in 54, this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Understanding this, in this region, it's these two miracles that are taking place in Cana. And John intentionally makes this clear to us. Because what we have to see is that John is using these two Cana miracles to serve as a bracket. In this section of scripture, all the way from chapter 2 into chapter 4, John is stressing something for us to see about Jesus by bracketing them with these two Cana miracles. There's a focus or central theme of this section that John is stressing to us. And it is that this Jesus who has come from the Father into the world is making all things new and giving eternal life to his people. To quote another pastor, these, this section of scripture between these two Cana miracles is showing that he is making new wine. He brings about the true banquet celebration. And Jesus is the new temple. He is the presence of God. And he brings about the new birth. Those who believe in Jesus are born of the Spirit. And Jesus brings about a new way of worship. He brings about worship in spirit and in truth. And what we see here in these verses is that he brings about new creation by bringing life where death has entered the door. So first, let us see the desperation of a father's heart in verses 46 through 47 as Jesus is conquering, if you will, this unbelief. This man is at Capernaum. He is an official of Herod Antipas. He is a man of means and resources, wealth, and his son is deathly ill. His son has a fever that will not break. His son's dying. Death is at the door. Death has reached his house. He has heard that this Jesus, this one who had heard about, this miracle worker, this magician, this one doing parlor tricks, has come to Cana in Galilee some 17 miles or so from Capernaum. And so this official, desperate to save his son's life and completely out of options, sprints these 17 miles to get to Jesus, to plead with him to save his son. And when he gets before Jesus, he he tells him to come down and heal his son for he's at the point of death. Every time I read this passage, I'm prone to be critical of this man. For all he wanted from Christ was the benefits that Christ could give. This is so often the heart of so many professing Christians. This is often my own sinful heart. The desire of having the benefits of Christ without having to have Christ. Like, Lord, help us put that particular sin to death. 
At first, he did not want Christ himself. He merely wanted the power of Christ, the power that Christ could offer. He merely wants from this Christ, his son, to live. But I remember a time in my own life when Haley was an infant and she got the the rotavirus and the vaccine was still in the process of being approved that year. And this virus nearly took her life. It was a terrible experience. I literally thought that she was going to die. And it happened rapidly to us. Within hours, I was holding her, and then she was in the hospital being taken from my arms, limp and lifeless. All I wanted was for her to live. I was a new Christian less than a year into my walk. I didn't understand anything about theology or doctrine or how God does work or doesn't work. And at that point, I did not really care. At that moment, I was willing to trade my salvation for her physical life if God would merely take mine and give to her. All I wanted was for her to live. All I wanted was for a miracle. All I wanted was for my daughter to live. A father's heart will cause him to act in desperation. So I I cried out in desperation, pleading with God, my head in my wife's lap, weeping tears that he would save my daughter at whatever cost. It's all I desired. All I wanted in that moment was the benefits of Christ. For I knew that he had to intervene or there was no hope for her whatsoever. And she would die. God answered my prayer and he used the common grace of doctors and medicines to save my daughter's physical life. And by the grace of God, he has done so to save her eternal soul. And it's been a beautiful thing that he's done for her. That he's done for us. And to be honest with you, that moment early in my faith, it gave me confidence in the power and faithfulness of God that I very much needed for the walk that was to come in my life and the challenges that we would face in our life. God answered my prayer that day. And he used the sickness of my child to grow me in faith. So before I get too critical of this man, I remember that God is sovereign over this very moment as he was sovereign over the moment in Emily and I's life when Haley was sick. When death seemed to be at our door and death seemed to have reached our house, God was sovereign in that moment. Spurgeon said this, I venture to say that the greatest earthly blessing God can give to any of us is health. With the exception of sickness, sickness has frequently been of more use to the saints of God than health has. And it was sickness that God sovereignly used to bring this man to Christ. A.W. Pink reminds us, commentating on these verses, this domestic trial was a blessing in disguise. For it caused the anxious father to seek out Christ. This resulted in him believing and ultimately his whole household believed. God uses many different agents in the predisposing men to receive and believe his word. It is, well when trouble leads, it is well when trouble leads a man to God instead of away from God. Affliction is one of God's medicines. Then let us beware of murmuring in time of trouble. Now this man of royal means, he had some faith. He had a little bit of faith. Or he wouldn't have come to Christ at all. He probably heard of the miracles in Jerusalem. He probably heard, if not seen, the miracle at the wedding in Canaan. But we also see a deficiency of his faith. Look at his request in verse 47. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Verse 47 tells him that he went and asked. The word 
asked, they'd be better translated. It is actually, I think, better translated as implored. And it's in the imperfect tense, meaning that he was imploring. It literally means that he was repeatedly pleading with Jesus, swallowing his, his pride as a member of Herod's court, begging for help from a carpenter's son. But he's confused about who this Jesus is, and he's confused about what this Jesus is capable of doing. I mean, this is the incarnated word of God that spoke in all things that came into existence, came into existence by the power of his word, ex nihilo, from nothing. And look at his request. His request isn't isn't speak. His request is come. Come down to my house and heal my son. This is a distinct difference from the centurion in Matthew chapter 8. Some people think that these are the same accounts, but there's so many obvious differences that it's clear that these are two different healing accounts. And this is one of the glaring differences. In Matthew 8, the centurion speaking to Christ, pleading with him to heal his child. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. So I said, child, it's his servant. The centurion understood the power of the word of Christ. Like I'm unworthy to have you in my house. It's not necessary for you to come to my house. I, I trust in the power of your word is the centurion's testifying to Christ. Merely speak it and it will be done. The official here is like Jarius. My daughter's at the point of death pleading to Christ, come and lay your hands on her and heal her. The official here is like the woman with discharge. If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. But I have to touch him. Or it's like Martha. Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. Thinking that Christ had to be physically present for him to live. The official here thought that Christ could heal, but he had to be close by in order to do so. He had worked Jesus into his own little box. And before we condemn him for doing so, we need to challenge our own faith or lack thereof. Because so many times in our lives, our, in our desperation, we, we doubt the ability of God and we seek to force him into what we think he can and can't do and seek to require him to work on his own terms. So secondly, what we see here is that Jesus' response is actually a rebuke to the crowds, as we spoke about a moment ago. He's pleading with Christ. Verse 48, Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official here is treated as a representative of the Galileans' unbelief. As a representative of their acceptance of Jesus as merely a worker of parlor tricks among them. The word of Christ here strikes me as odd, somewhat perplexing, and most definitely un- unexpected. If I'm just reading through the narrative of John and I get to this response of Christ, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe, I have to think what's going on. I mean, this guy is desperate, he's broken. His son is literally at the point of death. And Jesus responds to his request to save his son's life with a rebuke to the crowd. Like, like what is going on here? But here, Jesus is challenging this desperate father to go beyond mere self-interest and to see Jesus for who he truly is. 
He is forcing him to desire more than just the benefits of Christ, but to desire Christ himself. He's forcing him to consider the true identity of the one that he is standing before. There is a contrast. I'm sorry, this is a constant problem for the Galilean seekers. Jesus is constantly doing miracles for them to believe. In the Gospel of John, we see three of them. But in the other Gospels, we see evidence of him doing way more than just these three miracles in the area of Galilee. It's likely that Jesus' ministry in Galilee lasted some 16 months. But John only gives us three of these miracles here. We have this one with the official. We have the turning of water into wine at the wedding of Cana in John chapter 2. And then we have the feeding of the 5,000. That's the only three that he gives for us that take place in Galilee. But the other Gospels give us a full orb understanding of what Jesus does in his 16-month ministry in Galilee. And he had a great ministry there. Just consider what Jesus does in Galilee. It was there that he healed the demon-possessed man. He healed Jesus' mother-in-law. He healed a leper. It was there that he was received as Messiah. It was there in Galilee that he healed a paralytic. He healed a centurion's servant. He healed Jairus' daughter, a widow's son, a dumb man, two blind men, the woman who touched him with the discharge of blood. He did many other miracles in Galilee as well. The feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000 took place in Galilee. The stilling of the tempest sea, the walking on water, all of that was done in Galilee. And whenever each of these miracles take place in Galilee, we read some variation of this statement, that they believed in him. But here, we see very clearly in John that there is a lack of belief, a lack of of accepting Jesus for who he actually is. There's actually here in John a rejection of the person and identity of Jesus Christ by these Galileans. They're rejecting that he is the Christ, that he is the Savior of the world. And isn't it amazing? It is amazing. It's not a question. It's a statement of fact. It is amazing that this story follows the two days that Jesus spent in Sychar, Samaria. Samaria is the only place that Jesus was not rejected. It was also the only place that Jesus did no miracles. Let's just say something to us about our faith today. Are we chasing experiences? Or are we chasing after God? Aaron and I are ministering to a man right now who's visiting our church and recently left our church to go chase experiences and not God. His life is crumbling and falling apart for it. Jesus is forcing this man here to believe in his word, not in his miraculous ability. Jesus is forcing him to trust in who he is, not in an experience of him. Jesus is forcing him to place his faith in the Christ, not merely the benefits of the Christ. Now, thirdly and lastly, what we see in 49 through 54 is the reality that Jesus conquers unbelief with the power of his word. So Jesus said to him in 48... Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official continues pleading with him. Sir, come down before my child dies. He is pleading. He's desperate. And Jesus responds to him with, go, your son shall live. We see in this scene that Jesus, God, works in his own way and in his own timing. We believe in Jesus. We also faithfully believe that he answers prayers. 
But we also know that Jesus answers prayers in his own way and in his own time. Jesus refused to go to this official's home. But what we see here is the power of God's word in verse 50. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. This man is begging for Jesus to come to his house. And Jesus just responds to him with mere words. And look at the response of this man. As you continue reading in verse 50, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. This is amazing to me. It blows me away for at least two reasons. This man's son is literally dying and he needed attention immediately. And when Jesus spoke, this man believed and he just sets off on some 20 mile journey back home, believing that his son would be alive whenever he got there. With so much confidence that this man camps out on the way there. It's roughly a 17 mile journey. Jesus gives him this word that his son will live at 1 p.m. And this guy doesn't make it home until after 1 p.m. the next day. With so much confidence from somewhere in the word of God, this man has the peacefulness to even camp out on his way home. Secondly, I don't believe that even yet still, this man believed Jesus was the revealed son of God, the Messiah, the savior of the world. I believe that he just believed he could maybe actually perform this miracle. It doesn't seem to me until verse 53 that he believed that Jesus was the son of God. When he gets home and his servants tells him that his son is healed and that his son began to get better at 1 p.m. When Jesus spoke that word, we read in verse 53, and he himself believed in all his household. It seems to me at that moment is when salvation truly comes upon this man. So what he does in verse 50, it blows my mind. But I want you to see in these verses is the power of the word of God. Jesus spoke and the child was healed. Jesus spoke and this man believed. Jesus spoke and unbelief was conquered. Jesus shows in this his deity, his omniscience, his omnipotence. He shows the powerfulness of the word of God. The word of God is so powerful. It's so strong. It's so important. With simply his words, God spoke all of creation into existence. With God's words, nations are built and destroyed. With God's words, oceans are stirred and stilled. With God's word, churches are built and established. With God's word, the saints are washed and sanctified. With God's word, the dying are restored to life. With God's word, the dead are given life. With God's word, the lost are redeemed and reconciled to God. And we have access to God's word. Do we even begin to realize its power? Do we believe it? Do we study it? Do we memorize it? Do we love it? Do we find comfort in it? This official literally takes Jesus at his word. Go, your son will live. Okay, I'm going. Do you? Do you literally take Christ at his word? Do you believe and trust the word of God? Does it have authority over your life and ministry? Is it sufficient for your life and ministry? Does it guide and instruct all that you believe and do? 
the official didn't need to see sparks fly or the wind change directions. He didn't need a sign. He simply heard Jesus speak and believed his words to be true. I feel the more that we seek after signs for God, for God to prove himself to us as if we deserve that, the less and less we'll have actual faith in him. The signs in John are just that. They're signs. They are merely pointing to the reality of who Jesus Christ is. We, together, today, have the completed word of God. We don't need to search after signs to believe. Like, pick it up, read it, study it, believe it. Allow the Holy Spirit of God to apply the truths of this word to your heart and to your life. Jesus could have done a dance. He could have made a spectacle out of his divine, miraculous healing. But he just spoke. He simply spoke healing over a 17-mile distance. He wanted people to believe his word. He wants us to believe his word. His word testifies to his saving power, his cross, his grace, his love. His word comforts us. The word of God gives us peace. It gives us understanding. It strengthens our faith. The question for us is, do we believe it? Do we believe the word of God like this servant believed the word of God? Listen, I just spent a week with missionaries on the other side of the globe. These are missionaries that are planting churches. These are are people who by all means must necessarily affirm the truthfulness, authority, and sufficiency of the word of God. But I'll be completely honest with you. The majority of the missionaries that I spent time with last week do not believe the word of God to be everything that I just said that it was. And so they're allowing their culture to contextualize the church and are appointing women to be elders of the church as they're pastoring. And they're completely disobeying the commands of the word of God. They don't believe it to be true. It's not sufficient over their lives. It's more than a hermeneutic. It's disobedience. And they're missionaries. So I say all that I say to say that I know that there is probably even some of us in this room today that do not trust the authority of God's word. That it is not sufficient for us. That it does not rule and govern our lives. I'll never forget the truth that came out of Ezra chapter 6 when we were studying that book together. And what God gave to his people through Ezra is he gave them a priest that would bring the people of God under the governance of the word of God. And that's what we need so much today, to believe the word of God. Very quickly, I want to give you four points of application from this for you to meditate upon. If these aren't original to me, they come from J.C. Ryle and they're worth your time in meditation. I'm just going to give them to you. And you can process them and work through them on your own. Four applications from this. First, the rich and the poor both suffer equally. This man is rich and wealthy and has means and his son is dying. Secondly, sickness and death will afflict the young as well as the old. Many of us think because of our age, maybe death is not knocking at our door. But here this child is dying and we need to understand the reality Thirdly, the afflictions that God providentially places upon us are purposed to heal our souls. 
And fourthly, the word of Christ is as good as the presence of Christ. This man wants more than anything for Christ to come to him when all he needs is the word of Christ and its power to bring healing and restoration and reconciliation to his son. Take those and meditate upon them and think through them. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you have preserved it for us, that you have given it to us and granted us access to it. God, we thank you for the power of your word. And God, we pray that you would cause us to believe your word and trust your word and allow for it to govern our lives, Father. God, I pray for this faith family as we come in just a moment, Lord, around this table to commune with the saints and with Christ, Lord, together. God, that you begin even working now in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls, Lord. God, begin even now drawing up from within us a recognition of the sin that continues to reside within us that we may repent of it and put it to death even now before we come to this table. God, as we reflect on this passage, God, we thank you for the, for the message of Christ the power of your word. God, that you would bind our lives to it. God, help us to even be like this official and just believe the word of Christ. And God, that you would take this word and apply it to our hearts and bind it to our hearts. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.